0: Good. Come with us. No, 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 the movie Hi and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad,
1: nestled in the heritage and architecture of Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, swimming in kombucha and surrounded by monstera pot plants in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> I have no idea what you just said.
0: (laughs) In each episode, we focus on fantastical cinema, so sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part, because we love flying killer robots, homicidal hooded dwarves and mystical old ladies with prophecies. Oh,
1: I love a prophecy How are you, Dan? Oh, very very well, very well, coping Uh, I've actually recently started watching Red Dwarf Oh, really? (laughs) That British sci-fi show Uh, I started watching it years ago And it's recently come up on my streaming, so Retackling it, but it's it's terrible. It's a terrible show, but it's so entertaining at the same time. <laughs> and they've started doing it again.
0: I think they did it in like the 80s and early 90s yeah. and stopped. And and now it's started again.
1: Everyone's 20 years older.
0: <laughs> 20 years older and noticeably plumper. And I find it funny with Crichton, who's meant to be a robot, but uh-huh. he's sort of got middle-aged spread. I'm not sure how a robot gets middle-aged spread. But oh, <laughs> wow. Well. So how
1: have you been Conrad, seen anything interesting?
0: I have actually, Um, over here iTunes had this fantastic sale where loads of films were $2.99 for Ooh. a week, so I I binged and bought loads of stuff that I've been meaning to watch, and yesterday I watched Upgrade, ah, which is something you recommended to yes. me, because it was filmed in Australia, was it not?
1: It's filmed in Melbourne, so there are lots of things, ah. that's, uh, like he drives over the highway bridge, it's the Balti Bridge that I've driven over, (laughs) but they've, they've souped it up with CGI and all sorts of effects. So it looks futuristic. Um, and, and they go into that bar and it's a very, very, popular kind of indie music bar in Melbourne called The Tote. Ah. But they've, you know, covered it in bones and it's it's called the the <laughs> Boneyard or some <something> ridiculous name. <laughs> but uh yeah. yeah and it's supposed to be really seedy
0: and hidden away as well, isn't it?
1: It is a bit of a seedy bar. So um, they kind of got that.
0: Right, <laughs> oh okay. <so>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Um it, it kind of nailed the balance between almost B grade 80s with kind of modern sort of ominous sci-fi horror almost but yeah mm. I, I liked how it was filmed and I'm looking forward to more stuff from Lee Whannell yes well he did a fantastic job with Upgrade I really enjoyed it mm. highly recommended highly recommended so uh, Conrad anything in the mailbag today
0: uh well we had a response from Amy Battalabassi. hey Amy because we answered her ask me anything question hey Amy Uh, Yes, she was slightly surprised to discover that Ghostbusters featured (laughs) on our list of traumatising childhood experiences Ah yes, we are (laughs) wussers She was also talking about the fact that she remembers having a uh, picture book for Return to Oz And uh, Nathan Lang, another one of our listeners, said that he had it too And he also had a read-along storyteller tape Yeah, and I suddenly thought, oh wow, I remember those
1: yeah, me too. I, I'm pretty sure I had Alice in Wonderland on on cassette tape. Yeah. With the, the page turn sound and... Yeah, <laughs> the really overly loud compressed wind chime thing yeah.
0: that, yeah, would really startle you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a blast from the past. And we also had a response from the ever-reliable Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hey, Surge. Hey, Surge. And he said that he saw Return to Oz when he was so young, he actually confused it in his mind, conflated it with Wizard of Oz. So for years he steered clear of both because he couldn't remember which (laughs) had the super freaky and super scary people in it. Ah, right, yes. I guess the original had the flying monkeys, but I don't think that's a patch on Princess Mombi, is it really? No,
1: not. Uh, I don't know. They were pretty freaky, I think. For kids, you know, monkeys, they're pretty freaky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were. Thanks to everyone for, for
0: getting back to us. Mm. We love to hear from you. Yes. So I guess it's time to fetch today's movie from the Oubliette. And I think it's your turn because I've been kind of hogging it,
1: I've just realised. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while, a few months now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been since Melancholia, have you? Yeah, so uh, I can't even remember how to do this. Where Where do I go? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you just behind you and take a left. Oh, OK, right. I'll be one moment. Oh, here it is, over by the Oubliette. <laughs> Whoa, what's happened to the inside of this? Where are we? What are these poles for? (laughs) Why is the sky red? Who are these short guys? What's in those barrels? Yeah, I've just got so many questions. (laughs) Oh, watch out for that flying ball! Boom! what was that? I'm just gonna quickly grab the film and get out of here. The funeral is about to begin, sir! (sighs) That was an experience. Yeah, the last thing you want is balls flying at your face. (laughs) No, especially... Deadly, spiky silver ones. <laughs> yeah. So, the movie we have this episode is Phantasm, the 1979 surreal horror film uh, written and directed by Don Coscarelli. Ah, I have never seen this movie. Mm, well, it's, uh, it's a bit of an interesting one. Uh, so, Don Coscarelli, he he also directed The Beastmaster, uh, <laughs> Baba Hotep which uh, I think Mm. one of our listeners mentioned that we should do. More recently did John Dies at the End, which is a Mm. a really surreal film that I would love to cover at some stage. So Phantasm (laughs) is the first of a subsequent franchise of Phantasm movies. Uh, They got up to five, I believe. Um, The fifth one not actually directed by Don Coscarelli. Uh, This one stars A. Michael Baldwin as Mike... Uh, Bill Thornbury as Jody, Reggie Bannister as Reggie and <laughs> Angus Scrim as the tall man. Sounds exciting. And and what's the synopsis here? What's it about? So this film starts with the mysterious death of Tommy. So Tommy's mm. friends Jody and Reggie attend their funeral while Jodie's 13-year-old brother, Mike, witnesses some very uncanny behaviour from The Undertaker, later to be known as The Tall Man. Mm. Mike investigates further to discover strange cloaked minion dwarves and floating murderous (laughs) spiked orbs. Convincing Jody that something is amiss at the Morningside Cemetery, they try to find answers, only to discover missing dead bodies, a knife-wielding femme fatale, and a portal to another dimension. <laughs> How will Jody, <laughs> Reggie, and Mike defeat? These dark forces, and the most ruthless entity of them all, the tall man. Oh, sounds exciting. That's what we have in store. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, I, I can't wait. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs>
1: Welcome back. We are here to talk about Phantasm. So, Conrad, first time watching. Mm. Your thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) I had never
0: seen this before. Some people might question why this is in the Oubliette, seeing Mm. as Mm. it's got a reasonable amount of cult status and there are four sequels and... Very recently, it was remastered by J.J. Abrams and re-released in the cinema. So, mm, oh, you know, right. arguably it's not as forgotten as we might think it is. But I don't know. It's just not one of those ones that I've ever seen. And it doesn't seem as iconic to me as Halloween or Friday the 13th.
1: Yeah. It's a really odd film to watch. Mm. It does all the horror tropes, but the same it introduces a lot of things that just don't really make a lot of sense. And and no. um it's not the sort of thing that you can just put on to anyone. No. It's not like Halloween or or Friday the 13th. It's a lot more complex and a lot more kind of layers of of things going on. Yeah. So I guess that's why it's not as popular. Yeah, maybe. And also
0: in terms of genre, it's quite confused. I mean, I was quite surprised. One of my regular references when I'm researching for these podcasts Uh is um, the Aurum Film Encyclopedia, which has a different volume for different genres. And I couldn't find Phantasm in the horror volume. Right. And lo and behold, that's because I found it in the science fiction volume. Oh. So my my intro, where I'm sort of referencing three things that appear in this film, yes. homicidal dwarves and flying robots, and it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference to the fact that this could easily fit into all three of the genres that we look at. It's horror, it's science fiction, it's also kind of got elements of fantasy in there yeah sure it's sort of a boy's own
1: adventure as well so yeah it's an odd one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it does it does fill all the tropes of horror. Mm. It's almost like a checklist. So you you've got the really strange old lady fortune teller <laughs> uh, and you go into her house and it's just full of a thousand candles. Real fire hazard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think she even speaks. I think her 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 granddaughter does all the talking. You've got the sinister old guy that works at the cemetery, um, the tall man character. Mm. And also you have cemeteries and sex, which <laughs> seems to be a, a recurring <laughs> element of a lot of horrors. Like, Cemetery Man had that, and mm. and I think uh, Return of uh, the Living Dead also had that as oh well. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, so... <laughs> It, it kind of it does check all the boxes, but there are a lot of things in it that are really confusing. Most namely the tall man himself. Mm. Is he human? He, he seems to die or get his hand chopped off numerous times, and then he just appears completely unaffected. Mm. So his job is to dig up dead bodies <laughs> from the cemetery stuff them into barrels so they are shorter (laughs) somehow, and then throw them (laughs) through a portal uh, to a... a, I think it's it's supposed to be another planet, so it's not another dimension, it's actually another planet, an alien planet where these bodies are reanimated as these um, short dwarf munchkin cloaked slave... (laughs) <laughs> creatures that do something in this other planet. Um and all his yeah. his this is his bidding. So there's a lot of quite surreal scenes in this film mm. that are some of them are very, very surreal, like almost Dali-esque. Yeah. Like the dream sequences, I mean, that's another horror trope. Mm. You've always got the surreal dream sequence. The one with uh, Mike and he wakes up and his bed is on top of a grave and then the tall man is over him looming and then um, the, all these hands just emerge from the ground and try to pull Mike under. Like some really great setup scenes that were very eye-catching and very just visually interesting.
0: Yeah, it's visually it is a very striking film. Mm. I think Roger Ebert said that there are so many striking, well-staged set pieces in it mm. that are memorable, possibly become iconic. Yes. That you're, as an audience member, rooted to your seat waiting for the next one of those to come up because they're so engaging. Yes. But at the same time, utterly baffled by what the hell is going on. (laughs) I know, I know. Because there really isn't a very coherent story going on here. Now, there is an explanation for that, given at the end. I don't know whether that explanation was sort of engineered and tacked on to try and explain... The haphazard nature of what you've just sat through for the last 90 (laughs) minutes, or whether it was designed that way. I've read explanations that say that the film was constructed in the editing room, Mm -hmm. but on commentaries and so on, Don Coscarelli gives no hint of that. It's almost like this is exactly what he wanted. So to talk about the framing device would be a bit of a spoiler. How early do we want to get into spoilers? I
1: think. Just spoil away.
0: I think we should. So the whole thing is framed as a dream. Mm. And even one of the main characters is not alive anymore. So structurally, that gives sort of an explanation as to why it just seems to be lots of disconnected scenes. And some of them are great. And some of them like Reggie and Jody, having a good old... Musical um, jam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just jamming on the porch. On their guitars, yes. <laughs> but why? I, I couldn't figure out why it was happening and why it was going on for so long.
1: Yeah, I mean, that scene was completely pointless, except for that very last two seconds where Reggie pulls out a tuning fork, taps it, and then he stops it with his two fingers on the on the two prongs right which is referenced later on with the silver pillars that are the gateway to um the other planet and he he puts his hands on them i don't exactly know what actually happens when he does that <laughs> no. because suddenly everything's sucked into this portal <laughs> and there's just a lot of wind machines and 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 yelling and wind <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Yeah, there are are lots of very inexplicable scenes that don't really have any explanation whatsoever. Uh, What what you said about it being pieced together in the editing room kind of makes sense because there were lots of ADR bits, Mm. dialogue that was recorded in post that you could tell were just tacked on to link this scene to this scene. Yeah. Or to explain this montage or to explain why this character is doing this and uh, you could tell it was it was very obviously ADR as well. Yeah. So that makes sense in terms of it just being pieced together. I I'm not sure whether he had a huge overarching story in mind, but he kind of smooths out all the unanswered questions in the sequels. Okay. So maybe he had sort of a roundabout idea but he didn't really know where it was going. The ending for this film did feel very tacked on. Mm. Because so it, it ends with Mike waking up and it's all a dream and Reggie's still alive, but Jody's died. Yes. Because Jody has had a some sort of car accident. Yeah. So the whole movie is representing trauma, I guess, of Mike trying to deal with the death of his parents and his brother and it being sort of uh, represented in this crazy nightmare of portals and, and munchkins <laughs> and tall men. Um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it does pose a lot of questions. And I've seen all the sequels, I mean, up to number four, and it does iron it out a little bit. Okay, It does kind of get more confusing as, <laughs> as the sequels go along as well. So it kind of poses more questions. But it, I, I find them really fascinating and I think you should watch them at some stage. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting franchise because it, it's world building. It creates a completely different world mm. where things happen that you don't expect. I think it's done really well and each sequel isn't trying to be the first movie, mm. which... Most horrors are doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's great, this movie, in terms of creating this new world that we've never seen before.
0: Yeah, I guess so. And it may be set in the context of the rest of the series. This first entry makes a lot more sense. To an extent. (laughs) (laughs) I I do have the whole box set. I got the Arrow video box set in the UK, which came with a silver ball. And I think I (laughs) I messaged you a picture of my complete consternation of what is this chrome ball with spikes (laughs) on it that's in (laughs) this box set? I was utterly confused as to what this was, but yeah. So maybe I'll I'll watch the rest of them because, for all of my confusion, I am intrigued. Mm. It certainly keeps you on your toes. It keeps you engaged, mm. even though when you start to analyse it anyway, it really doesn't make a great deal of sense. No, not really. <laughs> So, if we talk about the story, mm-hmm. we've got two brothers, Mike and Jodie. There's a big age difference between them. Uh, Mike is 13, I think, although the actor Michael Baldwin was 16 when he played him. Mm-hmm. And Jodie is a full grown adult, pretty much. I mean, he looks like he's in his 20s, to be honest. Mm. And they've recently lost both of their parents. Although the circumstances are not explained. So, Mike's greatest fear is that his much older brother is going to leave town, go on with his life, and that Mike will end up living with his aunt. Yes. So he actually goes to the fortune teller to get advice on that. Yes. Nothing to do with shenanigans in the cemetery and the, the tall man, <laughs> but it eventually involves into this boy's own adventure with the two brothers uncovering the dark secrets of their local mausoleum, where the tall man has this dastardly plan to shrink corpses into reanimated dwarves or something. <laughs> yes. Uh, But along the way, there are so many lapses in logic, like after Mike's been on his own little exploratory adventure in the basement of the mausoleum and just barely gotten away from the the sphere, the flying sphere with Mm -hmm. spikes on it. And is that where he chops the tall man's fingers off?
1: Yeah, yes, yes. So he he closes, he slams the tall man's hand in the door and then he proceeds to slice it off with a knife yeah and and take one of the severed fingers with all this blood. But it's not red blood. No. It looks like yellow curry sauce to me. It does, yeah, it really does. Or custard in the UK.
0: Um, oh, yes. Yeah, yes. so he takes his finger home in a box and he says, Jodie, I've got to show you something as proof. And he explains his experience and shows him the severed finger, which is still wiggling around in the box. Yes. And the older brother goes, okay. <laughs> no. Just accepts it all on, on. that basis alone, yes. Yeah, that's fine. The finger sells it all. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> There's <laughs> a phrase for the poster. And then promptly starts arming his 13-year-old brother to the teeth with guns and <laughs> knives. <laughs> And the scene where the brothers are talking after Mike's adventures in the mausoleum is just really oddly staged. So at one point, they're on the stairs with the box Uh at the beginning of the conversation. Then it cuts to outside on the porch with them continuing the conversation. And then it cuts to them in the kitchen. But all the while, they're delivering dialogue that would most realistically play in one continuous scene. Mm. So even a simple dialogue scene is really disjointed. I'm just trying to imagine what that would have been like. is it, Oh, just hold that thought, big bro. Let's move to the porch. <laughs> <laughs> why? And this is why people say that it has kind of a dream logic to it, that mm. you are sort of snapping from one setting to another and you're just mm. accepting this flow and how this maybe even reveals the artifice of movies because your brain just accepts cuts from one scene to another, whereas in reality... You know, life is one continuous stream and you don't suddenly Mm. jump from one moment to the next. Mm -hmm. Still, I can't help but wonder if that's just the result of a very naive production just piecing together bits grabbed over the course of however many months and maybe even years that they made this movie. Mm. And then they just say at the end, it was all a dream. And you're just supposed (laughs) to accept that. (laughs) Or whether it's genius. And I I
1: don't really know. Yeah, I mean, I I think overall it is a very low budget film Mm. i read somewhere that don cascarelli when he hired the gear he would hire it on a friday because apparently the weekend didn't count as two days so he would be able to hire all this <laughs> his film gear and only pay for one day of hire. Um, so it was very low budget. And I, I think I read as well that the first cut of the movie was three hours long. Wow. Um, so he had to cut something out. So uh, I guess that's why some scenes do feel a bit meshed together and a bit hacked. I mean, it reminds me of, of that film that we did uh, previously, The Stuff, which was just a hack job of a bunch of scenes and just edited together to form some sort of plot and dialogue. But um, I don't know. I felt this one flowed a lot better than than the stuff. The stuff was just very clunky and very... Like, it wasn't engaging, whereas this one was engaging. Mm. I think one of the strong points of the film was the character of the tall man. Mm. Like, he was very sort of ubiquitous like he was just always there and always just looming in the shadows Mm. and that was frightening that was really frightening and that really carried the sort of dread of the film and made you just unnerved all the time because the acting of the other characters was not great no (laughs) It's very wooded It's uneven I think
0: some scenes are better than others Yes In that respect, it sort of reminds me of something like the original Evil Dead uh-huh. Where, you know, it's a bunch of uh, semi-professionals and amateurs Just throwing everything at the screen and seeing what works And mm-hmm. because you accept that that's what it is, you go along for the ride Yeah And you don't mind so much about the odd line deliveries, <laughs> shall we say
1: but I think I think overall it's passable. Mm. And compared to the stuff, there were lots of scenes that were just 10 times as long as they should have been. Um whereas the dialogue in this was was the dialogue that you needed to hear most of the time. Yeah, I mean some of it's risible though as be said. I mean lines like
0: there's a door down there and I'm sure there's something behind it. Well, <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah, that's a safe bet. <laughs> I mean, I did feel like a lot of the dialogue was just exposition. Here's some exposition mm. we're telling you what's happening, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, that's true, but even then the the logic, the motivation of
0: the characters from one scene to the next just didn't make any sense. I mean, I mean, even the fact that Jody goes to the house arm to the teeth after his little brothers brought back a severed finger and spun him this yarn. And then promptly, after being attacked by a Jawa in a brown robe, and he never sees the face of this thing, so anything could be under there, and he just (laughs) shoots it in the head at point-blank
1: range. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: This could be a kid in a bathrobe. What the (laughs) hell are you doing? (laughs) And in fact, it was a kid in a bathrobe. Yeah, apparently they were
1: all children, yes.
0: Yeah, they are all kids. And meanwhile, he's locked his younger brother up, in his bedroom to keep him safe or something, to force him not
1: to follow him.
0: <laughs> and he escapes yes. doing something incredibly dangerous.
1: Yeah. I, it was really funny scene because everything was kind of laid out for him yeah. to make this device to exit the room just very conveniently. All the items he needed <laughs> just run in front of him.
0: Yeah, like a, a pin and a shotgun cartridge and a hammer and I think in reality that wouldn't have done what it does in the movie. I think it would have blown his arm off. Really? (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, (laughs) I believe so. (laughs) Yeah, On the commentary track, the director was saying, don't try this at home, kids. It really (laughs) would not do this. If you strap a shotgun pellet to a hammer and then hammer a door, it wouldn't blow a hole in the door. It would blow a hole in everything around it. (laughs) Wow, okay. That's why there's a barrel it projects things in, in one direction. direction. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. So Mike escapes and goes after Jodie. And as Jody's exiting the mausoleum after his run-in with the homicidal Jawa, <laughs> his prize car pulls up outside in front. <laughs> and he starts to threaten it with a gun. And I'm thinking, A, why are you suspicious of your own car? And hmm. B... Why isn't Mike just shouting, "Jody, it's me, get in!" Yeah, the logic just escapes me it's it it feels as though it's manufacturing a moment of tension when there didn't need to be one.
1: yeah, I mean I I kind of liked it like it, it was kind of tense like you didn't know who was in the car and then oh it's it's just Mike. <laughs> Uh, But I mean, because there were were a few other kind of more tense scenes that were pointless that had no, there was one scene where they arrive home and he's walking down the corridor and there's all this tense music is playing. And then the maid, a character (laughs) that appears once and never again, just pops up and makes a loud noise. And it's a jump scare and it, it serves zero purpose. It wasn't even a very tense scene from a character that you've never seen before. No. And never will see again. (laughs) No,
0: and apparently she didn't make a noise to make you jump in the actual day of shooting. So the first sound that you hear is actually Don Coscarelli. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, in post he recorded a, oh, or something. (laughs) Just pasted it in. Hilarious. Yeah, so logic is not this movie's strong suit but uh, i i don't know it's as i say it's all a dream and that just excuses everything yeah but you do kind of go along with it though don't you you as yeah. the film is going along you do you, you you are sort of wound up in the the atmosphere of it the world that don
1: coscarelli has created here mm. um i i i really like the kind of um sort of nonsensical almost um way of how people are making decisions and plot lines and stuff. <laughs> it, it was, it was kind of reminiscent of some of David Lynch's movies. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it just had just a weird vibe throughout. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it wasn't it was never really daytime as well. It always seemed to be nighttime. Mm. It just had the sense of this is not the real world. Mm. Um. So, like, I mean, yes, the the whole cop out of of a dream. That was all a dream. It's annoying, and I I remember not liking that ending. No, but. As I said, you should watch the other films, and <laughs> all will become clear. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all it's like it's almost like if you watch the first Lord of the Rings film, and then you made judgment for the entire series based on that film alone. There's kind of more to come, mm. but at the same time, it does it gets more confusing. And the fourth film, it makes no sense. Right, okay. even more. <laughs> so. <laughs> So um, I don't know. I, I kind of like to be challenged in films in terms of trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And I think there's enough there to almost make it work. <laughs> and, and it does kind of work. Yeah, I mean, I, I would go along with you in terms of
0: I, I don't necessarily want to be spoon-fed. I like having to think about things and to discover new things the more times I watch a movie. And I think the Lynch dream logic comparison is a good one, you get a sense with David Lynch that in his own mind he has a very clear idea of why all these things make sense. Mm. They make sense to him and you've just got to go along with it. And sometimes I can feel that it's speaking to me even though I have no idea really what's going on. I sort of respond to it anyway. Yes. And I think the difference with this is that it's all done with such glee, which is often lacking in Lynch. I mean, Lynch is pretty down. Yes. (laughs) But in this one when you have something like the local ice cream vendor show up right after the two brothers have done battle with a mutant insect. (laughs) Yes. And upon seeing this ridiculous special effect on a string, Reggie is just sold on the whole situation. It's like, yes, let's go and kick the tall man's ass. Yes. And you think, Right. So, you're just accepting that on okay. Fine. It's so upbeat and uh, full of energy that you just kind of go along with it. Mm, mm.
1: <laughs> there's never really a dull moment. There's always there's always something <laughs> no. to do. Like, let's go here. Let's do this. Let's do this. And so it, it kind of just keeps you uh, on the edge of your seat throughout and just wondering what the hell is going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: One thing that I think is interesting is how this film does seem to be much more influenced by science fiction than horror. I mean, I know that Don Coscarelli was originally inspired to make the film after he'd made two coming-of-age movies, Jim the World's Greatest and Kenny and Company, Mm -hmm. 75 and 76. And in Kenny and Company, which also featured a Michael Baldwin he had a sort of Halloween scene and I think there was a jump in it. And when he saw the audience's reaction to the jump, Mm -hmm. he was really excited and thought, hey, I should do a movie that's just lots of jumps. So (laughs) that's why he did a horror movie. But his horror movie is much more inflected with science fiction. I think I was really struck when Mike goes to see the fortune teller that she performs this weird test on him where he has to put his hand inside a box Mm. and he's told that something is happening to his hand and it's very painful. But when he takes his hand out of the box after he's endured all of this, there's nothing wrong with it and it was all psychological. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, it's just to tell him you've got to overcome your fears of your brother leaving and abandoning you and Mm -hmm. be strong for what's ahead. And, of course, this is a direct reference to Dune. Mm. I don't know if you've either read the book or seen the movie. I've
1: got the book on the bookshelf, and it's sat there Ah. for five years. (laughs) (laughs) I need to read it. Uh, I haven't seen the movie either because I want to read the book first, so Ah. it's a bit of a catch-22 there. (laughs) Yes, yes. I I read there was that reference to Dune. Apparently the bar that he goes to as well is, is called June.
0: yeah dune cantina yeah. so you've got jawas running around these little guys in brown robes which apparently wasn't intentional they were making the movie around abouts the time that star wars came out and all yeah. of a sudden they realized that there were these little people in brown robes and uh-huh. they were screwed but yeah so you've got jawas running around and a direct reference to the gom jabbar sequence from dune and then they go to the Dune Cantina bar. <laughs> I was just waiting for John Williams's music to strike up.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And to top it all, the brother meets an alien there because the young lady that he takes out to the cemetery for some sexy time is actually the tall man, apparently.
1: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, that's another confusing scene for me <laughs> yeah. because I was trying to figure out whether it was the tall man whether he was controlling her somehow through mind control or something oh, okay um, or whether he he just can shapeshift into a femme fatale I'm not I'm not sure. who knows <laughs> but yeah yeah he and her are supposedly aliens they're not they're not human and and the portal is mm. to another planet um, definitely science fiction all the way.
0: It is yeah, the room that the two prongs are in with the white glowing walls was a direct reference to 2001, the room that um Dave Bowman lives out the final years of his life in. Ah. And also in Mike's room there's a fairly prominently featured science fiction book uh-huh. by the author Roger Zelazny. My Name is Legion. Oh, okay. But on the commentary track, the director says lots of people have asked him about the significance of that. And he says he just liked the colours. <laughs> <So, laughs> but still, it's science fiction everywhere hmm. in this movie rather than horror. I find that interesting. And yet in terms of the films that this one has influenced the it's all a dream and a final stinger of someone being pulled backwards through glass yes is directly referenced at the end of a nightmare on elm street i don't know whether wes craven did it knowingly or unknowingly but it's definitely there mm. Yes. And just as unsatisfying there as well, because I
1: hate that ending. Oh, it, it's awful because you know it's it's just a rubber doll. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> I, I definitely feel like the tall man character has influenced other movies. Do you have any examples of, of similar sort of villain characters?
0: Well, certainly in terms of the scene where Mike finds a very old sepia tone photograph of the tall man on a horse-drawn carriage... And this sense that he's this ageless evil that's always been in the town doing his dastardly deeds. That turns up in Stephen King's It, even the moment mm. where the photograph comes to life and looks at the child character. Right. And It was 1986, so this again... These are all things that it feels like this film was very influential in the horror genre but seems to have been influenced more by the science fiction genre. Yes, so yes. Yeah, interesting case of Mm, cross-pollination.
1: For sure. I found the set design and and just production design in general really kind of pushed the film. It kind of elevated from the B-grade status. Mm. So you've got the outside of the mausoleum is this really ominous-looking... Dark building yeah. That apparently was used in a lot of other films Oh, um, right. okay Yeah, so that building was also used In Burnt Offerings In uh, 1976 oh. And A View to Kill in 1985 And uh, so I married An axe murderer in 1993 Oh, okay So uh, I guess a very popular building to use But it, it really set the scene For, for the cemetery mm. um, Also the cemetery itself was great I thought it looked real. Yeah, You know, it wasn't cemetery, man cemetery. It wasn't a bunch of cardboard tombstones or anything. <laughs> it looked real. And I really loved the sort of inside the ma- mausoleum, yeah. the, the marble corridors. And it was brightly lit as well, mm. which you don't see in horror films. A brightly lit corridor that's all white. Mm. That's quite common in a lot of science fiction movies, a brightly lit white room. Yeah, I think of... The Matrix, 2001, those kind of movies, and, and actually Lynch movies as well. Mm. Um, so I, I do see that science fiction influence. Yeah, that mausoleum set is incredible. Apparently
0: it was built by a bunch of students who didn't really understand how movie sets should be built. So uh-huh. it was built rock solid. That thing doesn't wobble oh, really? or creak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could have been the foundation for a house, that thing. It was solid. So there weren't any flyaway walls or anything. But still, the scenes that are staged in there are really quite incredible. I loved those. Mm. Yeah, all those sequences where the balls are attacking people. <laughs> the first guy that you see being killed by one of these spheres mm. is a caretaker. And I I think he must be in on the whole thing mm. because he's fighting with Mike when it happens. yes. And it sort of attaches itself to his head, drills into his head, and then just sprays all of his blood <laughs> everywhere. everywhere. But then seemingly that blood disappears <laughs> in the next shot. Yes. But then when he's lying on the ground and Mike's looking at the body, uh, this puddle of urine starts to grow in between... His legs. Yeah. So it's sort of ridiculous to begin with and melodramatic, but then it's brought down by this nasty note of realism with the mm. guy releasing his bladder after he's died. It's really quite a shocking scene, that one.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty much the only horror scene, really, in the in the whole film. I mean, there's a few stabbing scenes, I guess, mm. um, but this one is very graphic. And and apparently, originally, this movie had an X rating oh. because of that scene alone but they managed to somehow negotiate it down to an r rating okay but yeah it's a pretty graphic scene and the blood is like a jet it's like a it's like a a water fountain of of blood just jets out of him yeah it's like
0: industrialized vampirism was one description that i <laughs> saw of it very efficient
1: i also uh, i love the effect that they'd used for the orb flying through the air and attaching itself onto the guy's um, head as well that was all done Backwards mm, apparently. Yeah. So instead of attaching itself to the head, they just pulled an orb away from a dummy head, mm. and also that when it was flying across the room, they just threw it, yeah. and then did it in reverse. I'm really amazed at how much they were able to achieve on such a low budget and with such limited means. Mm. And I think it really does stand above a lot of other similar budgeted movies. Yeah, sort of cheapy B-grade,
0: straight-to-VHS knockoffs of the era. Mm. Definitely. I mean, visually, there are lots of scenes like that that are very striking. There's the scene where Reggie's car is overturned and... Mike discovers it in the middle of the road and he's running towards it. And as well as the headlamps being on and beaming through the uh, fog of the night sky towards the camera, there is another light source behind the car that's just spraying out these light beams in the same sort of colour temperature. And it's an incredibly beautiful shot. There's no logic to it at all. (laughs) But it's a beautiful (laughs) shot. And right after that, when Mike is collapsed in the middle of the road... And he ends up making sort of a psychic connection with his older brother and and Mm. that revives him in some way. I don't know what's going on there.
1: Yes, another inexplicable moment.
0: (laughs) It's just completely inexplicable. But for a nighttime scene, which are notoriously difficult to film, especially with physical film of the era, Mm. it's a great shot. It looks really
1: good. Yeah. So there's some really striking visual stuff in this film. I agree. I agree. Even the fact that the blood of the tall man is yellow Mm. was, I I don't know. I think it was a a good choice. Um, It just made it seem even like he was an alien. Mm. Now it's time for Random Trivia.
0: So Dan... What juicy nuggets of trivia do you have about Phantasm?
1: So today I want to talk about the tall man uh, played by Angus Scrim. But quickly, I'm just going to describe to the listeners what the character looks like. Yes. He's in his 50s, I think, always dressed in a funereal black suit with a white shirt and black tie. As the name suggests, he's tall, he's lanky, uh, his face is quite weathered and gaunt, his hair is... Almost down to his shoulders, it's grey and receding. Uh, All in all, he's a very creepy-looking guy. Mm -hmm. The actor Angus Scrimm. So he was actually a very tall man. He was six feet and three inches tall. They got him to wear suits that were actually too small for him and also um, three-inch lifts on his shoes. So he appeared even taller and the clothes (laughs) would look smaller on him to kind of extend his... Limb length, I guess. <laughs> yeah, m- make him look like a big pencil. <laughs> oversized, oversized man. Uh, apparently, him and the actor that played Jody, Bill Thornbury, were about the same height. So, there's one, I think there's one main scene with him um, when Jody first enters the mausoleum during the funeral and the tall man puts his hand on his shoulder and says, The funeral's about to start or something. And he's 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 <laughs> yeah. very tall, looming over him. Um, but they got him to stand on an, an apple crate, apparently, so that he would actually <laughs> appear taller because he wasn't taller than Bill Thornbreed. <laughs> So that's my Uh, trivia Did you have anything Conrad?
0: I had a little special effects trivia So when the mausoleum disappears And there are all these sort of weird optical effects And spacey elements happening As it disappears into the night Those elements, those film elements Were the same elements used in the Star Trek TV series When people teleported Oh, okay So the mausoleum is actually beamed up by Scotty <laughs> in the movie. Wow. <laughs> Thanks to a bit of recycling. So that's that, fun. That's great. Another science fiction reference. Oh,
1: yeah, indeed. And that's our trivia. Shall we talk about the music? So musically, I was a little bit
0: disappointed, I have to say. Oh, really? I'm not a fan of 70s
1: Is it prog rock? Would it be right to say it's prog rock? Yes, I would say it was 100% prog rock.
0: Yeah, it's sort of taking an influence from the use of Mike Oldfield's tubular bells on The Exorcist, I guess. And he's got that sort of arpeggiated theme going on. But it's used very much like a, a needle drop score, which just sort of means you take lots of existing records and you just sort of drop the needle on and just playing bits of music. To me, it felt like there was these unmotivated, tensionless stretches of the prog rock theme that would fade in and fade out rather than a constructed, composed score that is sort of more timed with the mood and the tone of of the moment or telling the story or enhancing the beats in the scene. It's just, oh, we should have some music here. Here's
1: the theme again.
0: Mm. So I found it sort of drained the tension of some sequences.
1: For me, mm. what about you? I, I, I actually really like the theme And I know it's a blatant <laughs> rip-off Of Tubular Bells from The Exorcist yeah, um, And also very reminiscent Of, of Halloween as well mm. But I, I really liked it uh, There's another film that uses Very proggy 70s rock From the band The Goblin um, Is that Cisperia? Yeah, I think Goblin did a lot
0: of Dario Argento's movies
1: Yeah, so it reminded me of those that kind of sound as well. I do agree there were moments where it did not tonally match what we were watching. No. There there was one scene where I think Mike was getting taken away by the tall man and it had the theme Mm. play as, as we've heard it Mm. a hundred times before in the film, but in an arrangement that was almost triumphant, which was not, what we were seeing on screen no, didn't match. No, it didn't. But I think for the most part, I did really enjoy the theme and I thought it was very iconic and very memorable and I can sing it right now if if you wanted to <laughs> because it was just played so many times. But the other parts of the score that weren't that theme, mm. it's almost like they played the movie and they had a prog band just in the studio and then they just played the scene over and over and they just improvised <laughs> something because there weren't many theme- any themes really no apart from the main theme. There was another one that was kind of this gliding glissandy synth line that they did. Yeah. Um but apart from that every sort of other scene that didn't have the main theme was just a new theme. It's like oh some music I've never heard before And here's, a, another, here's another scene Oh, here's some tense music I've never heard before So it didn't have that sort of memorable um quality to it No But I don't know, I still enjoyed it And there were quite a few scenes that had no music Yes At all And I was surprised yes. that there wasn't the, the the scene where Mike almost gets captured Um, He's in the car with the two girls And the munchkin creature's <laughs> break into the car and there's just screaming Mm. for a good two minutes or something and zero music and i thought that was really effective because i felt just quite traumatized by it yes it's disturbing i was refreshing to have synth and a real drummer as opposed to here's a string orchestra and here's some dissonant (laughs) brass i don't know it was just nice yeah, I mean, there,
0: yeah, there are other directions you, you could go in. I just think that this kind of music, to me, doesn't say horror particularly. Yeah. I've never found prog rock particularly tense. I, th- I just find it drains all <laughs> tension. And that scene that you're talking about where Mike is captured and taken away... That is Don Coscarelli's fault because on the director's commentary he says there was another cue composed for this scene but I wanted to put the main title music back in here because it feels like this is leading towards the big finale. This is the final moment so I wanted to bring back the theme again.
1: Oh, so it, okay. it
0: really is a needle drop score in the sense that he just sort of grabbed the needle and put it back on the first track. Again. Yeah, right, right, right. And I, Yeah, I agree. I don't think it was... Was a good choice to be honest but mm. what about the sound did you think the sound design was particularly good in this movie
1: i really liked it i actually really liked the sound um i liked how they represented um the tall man with sound so whenever they showed the tall man walking around they they just took out all other sounds and they just had these really heavy reverberant Footsteps mm. from the tall man walking around, and that just made him even more terrifying. And I thought that was a really good choice. Um, it's seventies, so and low budget, mm. so obviously it's not it's not going to be very very detailed sound wise. No, um, but I thought it was was pretty good. Um, there was I did notice some castle thunder <laughs> towards the end. <laughs> well, you know it's it's a very stock standard. <laughs> thunder sound it's to most people it just sounds cinematic i mean now it just sounds like castle thunder yeah yeah
0: Yeah, i thought it was pretty good as well i mean certainly in terms of there was an artistic intent behind it which you don't often get in low budget movie making um Hmm. yeah the other character that i really liked the sound design for was the jawas because they had this very distinctive alien guttural almost electronic sound to their voices Mm,
1: i think they spent some time to have sounds that were linked directly to the evil forces in the film and i find with with low budget if you spend some time with sound you can get away with things Mm. that maybe don't look great visually and i think they did yeah i would agree with that Okay, so what are the themes of this film? Well, it's an interesting one,
0: isn't it? I mean, I think you touched on it earlier in terms of the whole thing is one fever dream of fear of abandonment. Certainly, that's another thing that a lot of horror movies have is absentee parents... So in Nightmare on Elm Street, it's the parents are guilty of the original sin that the children are paying for. And Mm. Nancy's mother is an alcoholic and she's not really there. And in this movie, it's a very depopulated town that doesn't seem to have any authority figures in it. Mm. Certainly coming of age is in there as well. There's a lot of interest in sex, for example. Like watching your older brother raw dog a random bar pick up in a cemetery? Why yes. would you do that? <laughs> and somebody pointed out, actually, that although he gasps wow when the lady in lavender, as she is called, reveals her breasts, hmm. I'm not quite sure how he can see them from where he is because they show the reverse angle POV and I can't see it from
1: where yeah, he is. all but. you see is Jody's beer butt. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Which uh, one writer said that he gives a more appreciative uh, sound when his brother's bum is revealed. <laughs> um, so there's some sexual confusion here, <laughs> mm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I I mean, I do love the whole dynamic between the two brothers and something certainly I can relate to. I have an older brother who is much older. Oh, yes. He cameoed in our Christmas episodes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey, Gary. <laughs> hey, Gary. He's not a stranger to the podcast. So, yeah, that sort of looking up to your, your older brother and being afraid that he's going to leave and, and you're going to be left behind. I, yeah, I quite like that as a theme. Hmm. Don Coscarelli has some interesting ideas on what the underlying theme or the, the impetus for the film was. Oh, yes. But maybe you should go first. What sort of things were you picking up from the film?
1: I mean, if, if you take in the whole dream element twist to the whole film, so it was all a dream and it was just Mike dealing with trauma, dealing with the, the loss of his parents and his brother. And I guess the tall man, you could say he is a symbol for death. Mm-hmm. He is the death figure that will take his brother away. And the portal to another planet would be uh, the portal to heaven or hell, Mm. if you take into account the whole dream twist. Since I've seen the other films, yeah, there's (laughs) other explanations that I could come up with, but I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, I'd be really interested to hear what Don Coscarelli has to
0: say. Well, in the commentary, he says that it's all about the American way of death. Okay. Okay which is he he's focusing on how disgusted he is with american's way of dealing with death that it's kept at arm's length that it's not discussed and the fact that they uh, get a mortician to deal with all of it and not look at it not confront it mm-hmm. and then to cover it with makeup and hide all of it just uh, it gives this window of opportunity for the tall man to come in and do his dastardly deeds
1: yeah okay I mean it definitely has a, a sense of foreboding throughout the film mm. that, that the inevitable will happen, no matter what. Yes. And death is inevitable, so <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliat Theatre, it's the
0: prestigious Mobley Award.
1: Yes, it's everyone's favorite time of the podcast, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate a bunch of our favorite things in a number of revelous categories. Conrad, always started off with our favorite quote. What was yours?
0: So, my favorite was a Jody schooling his 13-year-old younger brother on gun responsibility. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> where he says to him, you don't aim a gun at a man unless you intend to shoot him, and you don't shoot a man unless you intend to kill him. Warning shots are bullshit. <laughs> which, which is great. I mean, I think I'm not a fan of the NRA and gun ownership in general, but I do have a respect for people that have a very strong sense of gun responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think telling people, don't aim a gun at somebody unless you intend to shoot them and don't shoot people unless you intend to kill them. So it's sort of imagine the worst case. So I think out of possible ways to introduce your 13-year-old brother to using a gun, I think this is a pretty responsible one. So well Mm. done. jody
1: (laughs) yeah and i don't think mike uh ever shoots irresponsibly in the movie either no i don't think he actually shoots at a man in the movie so (laughs) that's true uh my favorite quote was actually the same quote but i did actually like uh there's one this is after mike uh, encounters the uh, the Jawas for the first time. And he's trying to explain to Jody what just happened. And then Mike says, I don't know. It was little, brown and low to the ground. And then Jody says, it's probably just a gopher in heat. <laughs> and then Mike just says, it wasn't any gopher. Gopher
0: in heat. Oh, that's great. How about... Uh, best hair and or costume. You go first, so I don't steal your choice. Oh, well,
1: I mean, it, it looked terrible, but Reggie's here. Um, so he's got... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's a, a very balding man. Very balding oh, yeah. man. Uh, except he's still got your quintessential hippie 70s ponytail, uh, which is just <laughs> so wrong, but so right for the movie. Yeah.
0: <laughs> You have no idea how many academics I see at work who still have that test. Oh, really? (laughs) Bald on top, party at the back. Yeah. Uh, Oh. And what and what was your favorite? Well mine was the same, but I, I also wanted to take a moment to appreciate Reggie's attire because he goes into battle against an intergalactic mortician wearing his white ice cream vendors uniform topped off with a black leather waistcoat and a black bow tie. Oh yes. Classy. Very
1: classy. <laughs>
0: well speaking of lovely hair what was the most 70s thing about this movie do you think Dan?
1: well I've got written down here um, everything so <laughs> this is a very 70s film I mean just, just yeah. the, the prog rock alone just screams mm. 70s uh, the clothes just scream 70s everyone's wearing bell bottom <laughs> flared jeans um, double <laughs> denim with a matching denim jacket and very feathery, <laughs> voluminous hair. Uh, apart from Reggie, of course. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I don't know. Everything about this movie is 70s.
0: It really is. And I think i just add on to that random nudity. Because yeah. <laughs> although the 80s are remembered as being a very exploitative time, I actually think the 70s were sort of seedier yes. in that sense. You yes. You know. Yeah, there were a lot of wet t-shirts maybe in the 80s, but in the 70s, you got full-on mm. breasts mm. and bums. And
1: I was very influenced by the whole Italian horror, giallo genre. A lot yeah. of nudity, a lot of girls mm. getting killed nude. Uh, so, yes, just passed on to yeah. Hollywood.
0: And in this case, it isn't even the people you think it is, because the lady in Lavender... Did not want to reveal her breasts. No, so it's actually a stand-in. Yes, I think Bill Thornbury also has a stunt bum. That's not his bum. Oh, That's actually okay, is one of the technicians on the set.
1: <laughs> oh wow, taking it for the team, I guess.
0: I don't know. I'd be nervous about having a stunt butt. What if I didn't like it? <laughs> Put my butt into ill repute I always remember on the commentary for Final Destination one of the actors is quite angry that those aren't his feet (laughs) really oh okay he he thought he had much better feet than
1: that (laughs) wow okay did you have a favourite scene in this movie oh I mentioned it before actually so it's one of the dream scenes with Mike waking up uh, in his bed on top of a grave Tall man looming over Mm. here, he's backlit, it looks amazing. Just, wow, great scene. Yeah, it's quite a set piece, isn't it?
0: Sort of a tableau because the tall man, I think, is staring directly at the camera with his arms Mm. outstretched. It's almost like a painting. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. It's beautiful. Mine is the first scene in which the spheres kill someone and so uh, yeah we've talked about that before it's a beautifully staged shot that's lit amazingly well and the performance of mike and the tall man as well before mike escapes where they're sort of just sort of staring at each other opposite ends of this long marble corridor and mirroring each other's steps as he's working his way towards the exit yeah i love it it's a great scene
1: And that leads very nicely onto the next category, favourite special effect, Mm. and mine would be uh, that scene you've just mentioned, the killer orb scene. Yes.
0: I mean, my favourite is actually uh, the tall man's severed finger, because I thought, when I saw it wiggling around on the floor in its little puddle of custard, I thought that it was a real finger, that there was just a member of the crew under the set poking their finger through with an application to give it a fake severed stump at the end. Then Mike picks it up and runs off with it. (laughs) I was quite stunned. I thought, wow, that's really good. Self-contained little puppeted thing.
1: Yeah, I thought it was great. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, on to the next category. What did you think was the most cliched uh, horror moment? Well, are we going to do horror or sci-fi? This
0: is the thing. (laughs) Which genre is it? (laughs) I mean, If we go with horror, I think it's definitely investigating basements late at night because (laughs) it's never a good idea especially when you break a window really loudly to initiate your <laughs> stealthy investigation of the evil tall man's yeah. basement but i think actually the thing that's remarkable about this film is that most of the cliches are sidestepped so instead of a there being a, a cat in the basement that leaps out at mike it's a mannequin head hmm. in truth because on the commentary they say they couldn't get a cat <laughs> What? <laughs> it was it was going to be a cat, but they couldn't get one. Yeah, and Mike consulting a paranormal expert, but that happens when Mike's just worried about his brother leaving town. Hmm. Not that he's worried about the tall man. So a lot of cliches are sort of sidestepped. But what did you think? Did you spot a cliché in this movie?
1: I mentioned it before, but cemeteries and sex. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was a very 70s, 80s horror trope. Yeah. Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> no. It only happens in horror movies.
0: It's just too cold and creepy. And what if somebody found you? No.
1: No. I don't think that's a good
0: idea. That's a bad
1: idea. Yes. Um,
0: sound effect. Did you have a favorite sound effect in this movie? We've mm. talked about a couple before.
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, the sound of the orb, uh, the floating, flying orb, killer orb. Yeah. Yes. It had this kind of whizzing, whooshing sound, but it was also coupled with, I think, like a synth sound as well as well as Mm. an airplane i don't know there was a lot going on for this one single silver orb flying across the room it was different i think it was not what i expected and i liked it
0: mine would be the jawa voices which i've mentioned before but i also have a least favorite sound effect which is mike hammering his older brother's toes when he's hiding under the car oh yeah because it sounds like hitting an empty cardboard tube
1: (laughs) it sounds really hollow yeah right (laughs) yeah so let's bring back the infamous star rating for Fake Blood. Oh. There was actually blood in this. There was, yes, of all colours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what would your star rating for Fake Blood be?
1: I I really liked it. I mean, I, I think it was the right colour. It wasn't bright uh, red, <laughs> but it wasn't dirty brown. It was... The right sort of corn syrup red that they have. Mm. And also, it's funny, a lot of the films that we've done with horror, they have had other colored fluid blood mm. as well. So it's <laughs> nice to see some custard yellow blood in this as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I liked about the red blood was it's the right consistency because a lot of 70s movies, it just looks like people are getting ketchup on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But this was very watery stuff that was spraying. Oh, yes. Yes. What did we do this out of? Out of five? I can't remember. I'll
1: give it a five. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give it a five too.
0: (laughs) So, was there a funniest scene in this movie for you?
1: Well, for me, so it's after Mike has got the severed finger in the box. He's had it for a a certain amount of time and it's now transformed. Mm into this gigantic fly (laughs) creature that we've never seen before and we'll never see again, completely (laughs) unexplained, uh, and then they proceed to wrestle with it. He catches it (laughs) in his jacket. It's obviously not anything in the jacket and they're just throwing their bodies around the room smashing into the walls and (laughs) bounding down the stairs with this non-existent creature in their jacket and it was just hilarious to me
0: yes i would agree i was laughing a lot during that scene and that was the one that i picked too and i think it's set up as a funny scene to be honest because when you see the thing it's after the finger which is so good yes that fly is just so crap <laughs> it is and it's introduced because it goes behind mike and then it's sort of slowly working up his hair <laughs> yeah. and he's just sat there looking up trying to figure out what's on the back of his head and i thought this is comedy mm. this is evil dead 2 funny this is yes.
1: ridiculous. that's true that's true
0: and that's our mooblies
1: yeah The time has come to posit our verdict for the 70s surreal horror sci-fi phantasm. Should this film be thrust through a portal to another dimension by a bunch of rabid cloaked dwarves, or should it be liberated into the world to freely stuff dead bodies into barrels to be thrust through a portal to another dimension? (laughs) Conrad, first time watching, what was your verdict?
0: Do you know, I was ambivalent about this movie for the whole time I was watching it because I thought, I just cannot tell what is going on. (laughs) The logic makes no sense. The scenes are cut so strangely. Yeah. I'm not invested in the characters necessarily because it's all just so odd. The music is just so tensionless and unengaging. But at the same time, it's visually so striking. And there are so many arresting scenes in it and so many things that you're thinking about afterwards that it sort of casts a spell over you. I just think in conclusion, I think you do have to see it. I think you do. I think it deserves to escape because I don't think it is... Your Bargain Basement, straight to VHS, 70s, cheap and nasty, drive-in horror movie. There's a lot going on here. It's much more creative than that. And I think that's the reason why Don Coscarelli is held in such high regard by his fans and fans of cult movies generally. So like a a silver orb, I would let it go singing (laughs) out of that mausoleum to terrorise and confuse People everywhere (laughs) How Mm. about you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean I remember when I first watched it I was just very confused And had so many unanswered questions And I love that in films I love watching a film That just <laughs> baffles me I That's why I enjoy David Lynch films I wouldn't say They're, they're my favourite films But I like the experience Of being confused <laughs> And and you know that It's not because The director is incompetent And has no idea What he's talking mm. about You feel like there is Some sort of meaning Behind everything And mm. yes It's low budget And some of the effects Aren't great And uh, the acting is uh, Only just passable But I think Everything else makes it so much more enjoyable. And I think just overall with the story, I think there's a lot of originality. It's not trying to copy anything. It's not ripping anything no. off. It's trying to create a world that we've never seen before. And it continues with the sequels. And it's it's great to see sequels in a franchise directed by the same director. So there is a mm. sense of continuity and things going somewhere and a story progressing so yes i i I really love this film and watching it again i actually enjoyed it even more it's one of those films Mm. that gets better with more watches and and i like the score even though you don't like it but i think it's (laughs) i think it's refreshing to have something that isn't just orchestral strings overall yes i would liberate this film and set it free yes that's another one we're letting go (laughs) i know <laughs> oh, it must be getting soft. Okay, off you fly. Yes, fly. A door down here and it. Bye. So now the question is, what will we be taking a look at next time, Conrad? Well, next time we will be looking at another
0: horror film, but more of a supernatural political thriller. Oh, okay. Uh, so we will be watching the 1978 thriller. The Fury. Oh, never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a Brian De Palma movie oh. starring Kirk Douglas, John Cassavetes, Charles Durning, Amy Irving and Fiona Lewis and has a brief cameo by Jim Belushi as Beach Bum. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a cameo. <laughs> and Daryl Hannah as somebody called Pam. <laughs> so yes, this is a movie I've seen before. It's a Brian De Palma movie, so it's visually interesting, mm-hmm. and it has a score by none other than John Williams. So wow, yeah, pretty impressive lineup. High-profile names here. Yeah, it is. So it should be interesting to discuss this. And if all goes well, we will have a special guest. Oh, who do we have? I shall keep it a secret in case they don't show up. <laughs> <laughs> oh um, fingers crossed <laughs> fingers crossed yes we should have a special guest joining us our first of 2019 so mm, it should be fun great. and he says he's semi-obsessed with this movie so i am intrigued to find out Ooh. why <laughs>
1: So that's our episode for this week. You can find us on all the social network platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are Movie Oubliette on everything. We always love to hear from you listeners. Suggestions for future films or what you thought of our verdict for Phantasm. Anything at all. We look forward to your comments.
0: Yes, and memories from the era, like read-along story tapes, (laughs) which was fun. (laughs) Yes, and if you're enjoying the show as well, please do take a moment to rate or review us or mm. both on your podcasting platform. Tell your friends. Yes. Because we want more listeners. Mm, we do. We really like yeah. that. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. It's been fun. Bye. 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 We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up
1: the movies. This guy's not going to leak all over my ice cream, is he?